Welcome to the Intentional Growth Podcast, the show that teaches you how to grow the value of a company with an end in mind. Host Ryan Tansom interviews top business leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and other professionals who share their experience and expertise about buying, growing, and selling companies. Welcome back to the Intentional Growth Podcast. This is episode 257, and I am your host, Ryan Tansom. Today, in one hour, we are going to unpack way too many topics. Uh, You're going to hear me like a kid in a candy shop, and I actually think I said that quite a few times. Um, We're going to be talking about economics, what's going on with the world, the markets, U.S.-China relationships, debt complacency, the wealth transfer of the boomers to the other generations and way too many other topics, but it was an absolute blast of an episode and I can't wait for you to listen in. Our guest today's name is Alan Beaulieu and he is the principal at ITR Economics. We've had Alex on the show, one of their other co-workers, and he's been on twice where we've talked about the 10-year forecast and the 2030 Great Depression. We also had a market update. Uh, I think it was May last year as the entire world was getting flipped on its head. And and I'm super excited to have Alan on the show because we are going to be talking about what is going on today. So who is Alan? Who is ITR if you're not familiar with them? So Alan is the principal at ITR Economics, which has an unmatched 94.7% forecast accuracy at four quarters out since 1985. And this is a huge deal because a lot of economists don't constantly put their forecast accuracy at the front because it's just like any gambler. You don't put what your absolute overall winning percentage is. You usually only talk about that last win that you had, but ITR is willing to put their aggregate average accuracy in front of everybody to show that what they're doing is actually real world and it's tangible experience and insight into what's going on. He has a reputation as an accurate, straightforward economist, delivering award-winning workshops and economic analysis seminars worldwide for the last 30 years. Alan has also co-authored with his brother, Brian, the books Make Your Move, Prosperity in the Age of Decline, and But I Want It. Alan and his team forecast for their clients at 95% accuracy during the 2020 pandemic. So yeah, I think a lot of us can really understand how big of a deal that is when no one really knew what was going on. Eight out of 10 of ITR economics clients say that the company has increased their competency and planning. And one of the big things that ITR is known for right now is their forecast of a Great Depression in 2030. We're going to be talking today about debt, wealth, baby boomers, U.S.-China relationships, and a whole slew of other topics centered around the current state of affairs in our marketplace, including the impact of our situations like that of supply chain issues, inflation, you name it. I'm excited because this is such a practical discussion about money. The bottom line to every real decision is money. And when Alan brings together market forecasts and what this will really cost us, the insights are unreal. Do you know what baby booners are going to cost us in the end? Do you know if our economy is ready to handle that cost? Do you know how we're going to start to get a sustainable growth rate that's above and beyond the debt that we're accumulating? These are all kinds of questions that Alan and his team think about all the time and when making their market predictions. So, So tune in for some real cool, if you think this is cool, and kind of scary information about economics and where we're heading and how to start positioning your business to handle the waters, regardless of what those waters are going to be. Because the reality is you have a business and the future is never clear. There's always going to be things that we do not know, but there's ways to position your company and your operations and your strategies to handle the unknown. Thanks for tuning in, and I really hope you enjoy this interview with Alan. Sponsored by Arcona's Intentional Growth Digital Course. Ryan Tansom and Pat Hobby show you how to shift your mindset away from solving for annual income to focusing on strategies that create long-term value, giving you the freedom and choices to take control of the future destiny of your business. Accelerate your knowledge with 36 videos and dozens of exercises that combine decades of experience buying, growing, and selling companies. Learn more by going to arcona.io or visiting the show notes. Good morning, Alan. How are you? Good, Ryan. How are you doing today? I'm very good, and I am super excited. Uh, well, you and I just got done chatting, and I had saw you speak. It was like 2017 or 2018 at a Vistage. I think it was like 800 people in the crowd or something like that. And uh, I was just like jaw dropped and just watching you in so intensely for the whole time because I just love the topic of 
economics and over the last couple of years getting into monetary policy, just stuff that way down into the the depths of it. What for no particular reason other than that I enjoy it. And you guys have just such an awesome way of gathering data to make it presentable and easy to digest for entrepreneurs who are not from the world of economics or you know, the the spreadsheet junkies that come from investment banking or private equity. So I just really enjoyed it. Had Alex on the show a couple of times and here we are. And yeah. I'm, you've got a lot of forecasting and some things have definitely gone down since uh, we I spoke with Alex. <laughs> and that, that was, a yes, it's certainly been an interesting 15 months, you know, and I remember that thing in Minneapolis because at the, I had talked about the coming Great Depression, the 2030 thing, mm-hmm. as I'm sure you know. And at the end, somebody asked a question I actually went up to that gentleman afterward and, and gave him the answer he was looking for, but he, he gave me the best ending ever. He said, so what do I have to do to miss this great depression? I don't know if you remember my answer to him or not was, uh, it was, you could die. <laughs> <laughs> There's an easy way out, man. <laughs> then I went and gave him a serious answer, but uh, it sort of brought up the whole thing though. I mean, it's coming and you cannot not be part of it. It's a question mm-hmm. of whether you're going to prosper in it and be mm-hmm. prepared for it, but you cannot opt out and say, you know, I'll just ignore the whole thing. It's just not possible. Well, and, and I want to, I, I want to dive into this as well as, you know, give my layperson's questions from sure. someone that is passionate about economics, but like, before we do that, Alan, if you could give the listeners, because we had Alex on the show before, but you know, you and your twin brother started the business and you've you've got so much history in this. So maybe just give a quick overview of your background and how you guys uh, started the business and why, why you guys are approaching economics the way that you are and how you work with business. Because it's very different than I've seen and then versus just theory and people that are writing columns in the op-ed. Yeah, it is different. Thank you. Uh, first off, Brian and I did not start the business. Oh, okay. Uh, it was started in 1948. And so oh, we're wow. old, but we're not that old. By a guy <laughs> named Chapin Hoskins. Chapin was a very fascinating man. He developed some cyclical theories that we're still using today. They are foundational to our work. Uh, when he passed away, his successor was his assistant, Helen Langwasser. Helen sold the business in the 80s to uh, Brian. In the 80s, Brian brought me in to be his partner. And Brian came from uh, a government background. Most of his career up to that point was in government, and mine was in business. Mm-hmm. I had an interest in several businesses with a strong business background. So together, uh, we took ITR with that mindset. This has got to be about business, to your point. And our whole thing from the beginning is make it understandable and make it applicable. Because if you don't do either one, all you are, you're just a talking head spouting some numbers and trends. And you have, <laughs> There's a lot of those out there. <laughs> yeah. And you have no point, really. And the other thing that differentiates us and, um, is that we hold ourselves to our accuracy. You saw that in Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. Every time we speak, we say, this is what we said last year, and this is how it worked out by the end of the year. And that list never changes. And uh, holding yourself accountable to your forecasts is, is unique in, in our industry. And it gives people the confidence to act. Why is that unique, Alan? Because most people don't have the accuracy that I don't know of anybody that has the accuracy that we do. Every once in a while, we'll have one that's accurate in a series. In a point in time. Like, look, at yeah. we were right on that one thing. <laughs> yeah. But uh, our methodology proves itself year after year. In, in 2020, in, the, in March of that year, you know, everything was falling apart. You remember, Ryan, it was just, everything was in free fall, shut down, world's coming to an end. We had to tell our clients what the year was gonna look like. So we did, and for US GDP, China GDP, employment, housing, retail sales, we had to forecast all that. Mm-hmm. And they came in, most of them above a 95% accuracy in a forecast done in the middle of free fall in an unprecedented situation. I mean, the methodology we're extremely pleased with it works <laughs> it works yeah and our team it's not just brian and i we have a team of i think at the moment a little over 20 economists uh, some excellent excellent brains back there that uh, just do wonderful things so i want to uh because i i can kind of like lay out some of the topics that you and i can dive into because i mean we could probably spend the next four days <laughs> diving into any of this stuff and again you got the 24 hour seven news that does that so we're not going to but you know for you guys have this 2030 depression i want to talk about that kind of re 
reset the foundation of like why that is some of the the theory behind that. And then you guys have this, I want to dive into like a, a little bit more about your model, but what these leading indicators are and how you guys use that. And then we can talk about, you know, the, all the other things that are happening kind of in the near term, like inflation and supply chain issues and, you know, the, the prices of valuations and assets through the roof. So I, lots of stuff we can park over there for a second, but like, why don't you just explain your theory on the 2030 and like your philosophy and or not the philosophy, but the model, how you are predicting that and why. Yeah. Okay. Happy to. It begins with the cyclical theories, which are unique to ITR that Chapin developed. We don't ever lay out those theories in detail. That's our, you know, Coke formula. That's a secret sauce, but they pointed to it a long time ago. And so as Brian and I wrote a book in 2014, it was published in 14. We started before that called Prosperity in the Age of Decline. And through there, we, we dove into, okay, we see no inflation now. We see, you know, pleasant interest rates, but we see governments across the world really beginning to take on debt like, it's, like it doesn't mean anything. And mm-hmm. we looked at the demographic trends around the world, the boomers around the world aging and the cost that we bring to an economy that in other countries not being replaced by younger folks. China's population is in decline. Japan's population in decline. Russia, not a big country anymore, but their population is in decline. In the United States, we're still eking out some growth, but we're so expensive in the United States that we boomers are a major cause of the Great Depression. It's, it's not a pleasant thought, but what you have to do, Ryan, is form uh, you know, pillow squads and come take care of me in the night. And <laughs> <laughs> Pillow squads. <laughs> <laughs> well, what would you like to smell on your last breath, right? Lavender, of course. <laughs> your lavender, there you go. <laughs> but uh, that's an unstoppable train. Uh, and the question comes up, did COVID change that? And it was COVID was dramatic and tragic and I in no way want to minimize the deaths that occurred, but not nearly enough to change the trajectory. And there are 40 million in this country right now drawing down on social security and prescription drugs and Medicare. That's going to almost double next decade. And you, my friend, have to pay for that. And it's either going to be through increased debt, you pay interest, or you're going to be seeing more taxes. And guess which Mm -hmm. one I'm betting on? (laughs) Well, and it's so, yeah, yeah. There's so much behind that too. And while you're talking about this, Alan, um, I read uh, a book by Ray Dalio called Changing World Order. I don't know how familiar you are with his work or anything, but uh, there's also a book called uh, Managing Big Debt Cycles. Mm-hmm. Right? And so he's got this whole philosophy from his research at Bridgewater that there's the three stages of money. So it's the hard money and then it's the note backed and then it's fiat. And then every single time the the world denominated currency, everybody essentially goes bankrupt and then they have to start all over again. Yeah. So I don't know if this like correlates with your guys's. That, that's it. Uh, and so... Back then, there was no modern monetary theory. That's a relatively mm-hmm. new thing. You're into econ. Mm-hmm. You, you, you know, MMT is out there. And while it's unofficial in this country, it's very real. Yeah, right. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what's going on. And that has a long-term implication, not just to the value of the dollar, trust in the dollar, devaluation of the dollar, creation of more inflationary pressures, which is higher interest rates. Mm-hmm. And that's always tough on a population and on businesses. I mean, there's no... Hey, that's going to be benign forever. <laughs> that's right. never been the case. <laughs> right. I mean, like, because at some point, like, I think about, like, as you're talking about this 2030, like, I remember when I, when I first watched you, I was like, oh, that's super interesting. And I could kind of like feel, but like over kind of, you know, clarify my own puzzle of knowledge, which is the more I learn, the more I know, I know nothing. Yeah, I it's like, you. at some point, someone has to make a return and someone has to make money. <laughs> That's the whole point of money, right? It, like someone has to have goods in exchange, you know, exchange goods and services using money that people believe are going to have a upside. And when there's no interest rates, I mean, these big pension funds and insurance companies can't make any yield. So like, what are, they're going to have to go somewhere yeah. for yield. Yeah. And, and, and they will, and they'll take on increased risks or they will uh, back the fastest horse. But you know, it, what you just said struck me as fascinating because I know who your audience is, you know, and, and they're people like you and I. But do you realize how many people out there 
think what you just said is wrong. Oh, I know. And and in a culture like that, how do we not drive the bus to the cliff? Because in that culture, it's like, let's just print it and spread it out. It's it's that's all we need to do. It'll pay for itself. How can it not pay for itself? And and so it's crazy, Alan. Like, so I got done also, (laughs) and I'm also like a kid in a candy shop with you. So like, because I don't like, it's like me in my dungeon, just like talking to myself. (laughs) I just got done reading uh, changing fortunes by Paul Volcker. I don't know mm-hmm. if you ever come across that book and he he talks about this stuff and it's such a simple book and how he writes like every business owner could listen to it. And then you go oh, all the jargon today with derivatives and all the manipulation. It's like, well, it's all fake money. And he goes back and you know, he's talking about Bretton Woods of like back in the hard dollar. <laughs> like this is right. how it works. Yeah. And you just can't do this because at some point it doesn't work. Yeah. And it's just, it's just interesting that like that's debatable. I, yeah, you're right. The redistribution of wealth, and I'm, I'm reading a book, and I, and I quote the author if I could. Uh, I just started it. It has to do with, and it was written in 2009, back in that those mm-hmm. dark days. But it really had nothing to do with the the Great Recession. But how, and this will this will get me in trouble on most radio shows. You're, you're fine because your audience, but <laughs> yeah, there's not a bunch of acad- academics that are going to challenge different right. <laughs> different different angles or right. But the, the point of the book is how the, the redistribution of wealth through the welfare state hurts economic growth and hurts what people make and, and has a negative impact. It's an academically written book, so it's not for everyone, but mm-hmm. it is compelling. But his basis real early on is key. It says they don't want equal opportunity. They want equal. And, and, in no time in history has everything been equal. There, there is no point in history where that has worked. And when people have tried, it's failed miserably. And yet that's exactly what we, we see now where whoever you are, you, it has to be, and the other word is fair. Everything has to be fair. Now, what the heck is fair? I, I have six children. One of the first things I said to each of them, I held them up in the air. I go, remember, life is not fair. Whatever you do, remember, life is not fair. <laughs> just isn't <laughs> i have twins too alan i have twins too they're four and a half and wow. yeah they're wildly different <laughs> well yeah, it's so interesting because culture you, you, works against uh, works against big back to the premise the culture is working against uh sound financial thinking which makes it easier to see the bus going towards that 2030 well and let's pull that thread because i think that's going to give us an awesome foundation for the conversation because sound financial thinking is that someone has to make a make a positive cash flow and yeah. increase their balance sheets. And it's so interesting, Alan, as I have as all the different different debates about different policies going on, I think about like any one of our companies, in even my old business when we had the turnaround experience, how can you argue about one line item on the income statement if you don't know how much money you're supposed to make? Mm. Like how how like like I would just think about in my old business, we had, you know, it was a copier sales, we had, we had a copier business. So we had 20 very hungry salespeople who loved to figure out how to juke the comp plan to make more money. <laughs> and the thing is, is like, they always want to make more money, but if the business isn't doing well, no one's going to have a job. Right. So like, if we're all doing well, then we'll introduce profit sharing. We'll do more benefits. We'll go on president's club. We'll do a lot of things when we're growing and we're creating cash flow. And when we're going down, we don't. Like we ha- everything has to be looked at in total of a of a cash flow statement and a balance sheet. <laughs> and without it, then it is just kind of this like arguing over nebulous topics without any kind of footing in anything. Yeah, absolutely right. And seeking after financial equality and seeking after fair is a task with no end. And we'll never get there. We'll never be satisfied. But in the meantime, we'll make sure that we punish the rich. Remember the, it's an old song from 10 years after, but the gist of it is, you know, tax the rich to feed the poor until there are no rich no more. And one of my favorite groups is the Temptations, Ball of Confusion. And, and in there, there's a lick that says, and politician, this was written in the late 60s, maybe early 70s. Politicians say more money will solve everything. I mean, <laughs> nothing has changed over the years. Isn't that crazy? It is busy, crazy. So that's why we're going to go there. Higher interest rates, inflation, 
people in debt, governments in debt, businesses in debt, and, and we've been lulled into thinking it's all okay. It'll all work out somehow, and uh, it, it won't. So how how do we in or how how do we as a as a society and business owners and people trying to navigate this and I know we'll get to like what are the things we can do about that to prosper in it like you guys wrote the book on what are you seeing now like so maybe take us back to when this all when the pandemic happened and you're having to readjust and I actually saw Alex speak in October <laughs> and I was like and then I think he was on the podcast last April so we kind of had a little bit of okay we're in free fall and you guys were kind of probably formulating <laughs> where everything was going but how how what did you predict and then how does the short and I don't know if, where you want to go whether it's the short term and how that ties to this 2030 forecast like what's going on with supply chains and inflation and just yeah. kind of your overall it, it sets it. it up I mean your segue is is right on target Ryan because it sets up the future today and we're seeing some inflationary pressures that are real, the PPI and the uh, April push in the CPI. And there's this, this justifiable concern in business that, oh my gosh, this is, this is upon us. And there's a generation that has never seen it. Mm-hmm. And so they're dealing with another new phenomena right after they got through COVID and, mm-hmm. and, they're, and they're getting hit in the face again. Us older folks, we go, Oh, okay, that again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it gives mm-hmm. you an entirely different perspective. The, the bottom line is we're getting a taste of inflation. It'll be interesting to see what we learn as businesses from it. Now, your listeners should learn that they should know this is temporary. We're not going to see massive systemic inflation for years. I think at least three years, four years, it'll begin, and then it always cooks up, you know, your, your mm-hmm. stuff. But uh, have them ask themselves, all right, what are, I, what are my major takeaways from this? When I start seeing painful inflationary pressures, what should I have done to prepare myself? Mm. Um, how could I have known? There are ways to know. There are leading indicators. There are things to tell you. There's ways to manage your inventory, your pricing. Which PPI are you going to use for an index to have in your contracts? I mean, there are specific things that can be done, but learning is the big thing. And then for your listeners, do not think this is going to be the same in 22. The rate of rise in these commodity pressures is about over. We're going to see plateauing, uh, like in copper and aluminum and that sort of thing for, mm-hmm. for several quarters. So they need to adjust to that reality real quickly. And hopefully they will. That's to me is a big takeaway. And then we'll see some normalization and then it'll go up again. Second half of this decade, we enter into the roaring twenties. It's a, it's a, it's a new, concept for a lot of people. Now, as far as supply chain goes, um, that one was, uh, that for us was like, what the heck is going on? (laughs) (laughs) It's crazy. I mean, like, so it's so interesting too, and because to going back to your inflation, what could you have done about it? This is a couple of real life client stories here is we had uh, a manufacturer down in uh, Florida and all of a sudden their, their cargo from you know overseas it's like whoa for 280 percent up and like millions of dollars disappear in yeah. working you know working capital or whatever it might be another uh home remodeler all of a sudden you got the inputs that are doubling in price while they're quoting jobs yeah <laughs> it's like yeah. so you're trying to trying to push that through and i'm watching that golf ball go through the system because they're trying to pass it on as fast as they can to their customers sure. so they can maintain what's going on. And it's like, how do you prepare for that? But then also adjust it accordingly when it, when it tapers off too. Well, one of the, th- one of the things that we learned in the old days was that, and we stopped doing this because uh, inflation was, was quiet, was that in your contracts, you had a price adjustment triggered to, some people use the CPI, that's wrong. It should be triggered to the PPI, a relevant producer price index. And it was just in the contract. And, and when there was no inflationary pressure, there was no nothing there, but there was a built-in trigger that would protect you uh, if all of a sudden something happened. Interesting. And, and uh, I mean, I had to have a roof put on one of the properties my wife and I own and the price doubled and from something I'd gotten a price on a few months ago, and he was apologetic. I didn't try to hold the guy to it. I'm not trying to put him out of business. But plywood to your home builder thing, you know, plywood has <laughs> just gone nuts. So you can protect yourself. He could have had that clause in there and just said, well, hold on, the PPI is done. Here's your new price. 
So interesting. Yeah. And go back to like what, you know, so you got the, the fact that we just hit the throttle on the money. So you watch these assets go up, but then also that's, that's inflation. What's well, one component of inflation, but then you have a lack of supply of inventory yeah. too. So you have both of those that smash together at the same time. Right. And they both self-correct is the beautiful part of it. And the money supply is fascinating subject on its own. You and I have just lived through history that I hope we never see again, uh, both in terms of the pandemic and the sheer amount of money that was put out there. And I'm not against helping people. There are different mechanisms and, and don't take that as an anti-people statement. Just mm-hmm. there's always a law of unintended consequences. You're well aware yeah. of that. And so are your listeners. And what has happened here is all that money is produced besides the pent up demand and the stay at home has produced the ability to demand goods. And that has created a surge in demand that will drive up prices and, and cause shortages in and of itself. Mm-hmm. And the, that goes away. Unless we see that President Biden and company are going to continue a, a, another $2 trillion round, another $2 trillion, those checks are stopping. And in September, the federal unemployment insurance stops. And in September, all the kids go back to school. So as those things happen, we expect we're going to see this thing that we used to call normal (laughs) (laughs) and consumption returns to normal levels. Life returns to, I got to commute. I got to take care of the kids. Now there's some great tax benefits now for parents that have to put their kids in childcare. And that's another subject, but that demand side of the curve slows down. Same thing with businesses. Businesses were slammed, right? And, And as businesses were slammed, uh, they could raise prices. They had to raise prices. Their input costs were up and they could get more. But when demand slows down on in the CapEx sector and on copiers or whatever it happens to be, your prices have to adjust that. Mm-hmm. Without the stimulus coming into them, without the consumer demand, without the urgency, we're going to see things stabilize on the demand side. And that leaves the supply chain a chance to catch up. What'd be interesting to see, Alan, is if the, and I'm curious on your guys' forecasting, like, is the demand going to go back for goods and services the way it was? You know, there was a bunch of articles over the last 15 months about, you know, the, the, all the money, the bridge to nowhere. Cause I'm very familiar with what a bridge loan is to get you by the, the next payroll. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is like, you know, I will look inside of the balance sheets of a lot of our clients or any customer or anybody that I've talked to, and they have more money than they've ever had. I literally, like, Alan, I'm not even joking. I was talking to a friend of mine who owns a, uh, well, they call it opportunity financing, but it's essentially, you know, just, uh, I mean, they give people not, not, uh, loans, not, not backed by any collateral, high, high interest. They have thousands of customers. They usually have issues with like, I think it's 25% of people, you know, bounce and then they clear. So it's only like 5% bad debt, but they had zero wow. people with issues, not one wow. in the last like six months. It just shows you that there's that much money in there. Yeah. So it is like, and we, as we look at our forecast of our clients, is that money going to get them to the point where their demand and their new cost structure is sufficient to maintain their business? Yeah, the demand will be there and it will be sufficient. They'll have the cash to get them there. There's no doubt about that. And I think, let me see if I can rephrase it. If, if I'm looking at non-defense capital goods, new orders, which is a great measure of CapEx, it's already at record high levels, but it's ascending at a, a extremely fast pace, an unsustainable mm-hmm. pace. Okay. When the rate of rise slows, we're still at record high levels. So your customers are still feeling record high demand, but not at a 25% year-over-year clip. It's down to a 7% year-over-year clip. Mm. And so they'll need their cash. They will need the efficiencies. They will be happy. They will be happy with PLs and balance sheets and all the rest of that. They'll actually be happier because when it goes to 7%, all of a sudden supply chain can catch up to that and, and oh. those woes begin to go away. Because uh, container shipments into this country are higher than they've been for years. We keep hearing we, we can't get containers in. Uh, it's a series that we, we look at the containers from the five busiest ports in the United States. They're up well above where they were before COVID. It's, oh, wow. it's just because of the demand pull. Oh, yeah, interesting. So I think this is a good uh, spot explain your leading indicators and how those work. And I don't know if that ties into like how you're forecasting, you kind of explain your, your model and how you forecast with the accuracy that you guys do. Yeah. Leading indicators are an important part of it. And we also use rate of change. So I'll touch on both of those things. Yeah, awesome. uh, If you don't mind, I'm going to start with rate of change. Actually 
Rate of Change is uh, what our first book was all about. My brother and I wrote that. Uh, don't remember how long ago. It's uh, called Make Your Move, which, by the way, is a terrible name for an economics book, but it was okay when we wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't age as well as you wanted it to? Well, you Google that name, you don't get our book. Let's just put it that way. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I can only imagine. <laughs> <laughs> so, but if you go to Amazon, you know, you're not going to get anything bad. So <laughs> use somebody else's computer if you want to test that one out. But uh, it's a tool that all your listeners can use. It's, it's a... It applies to every industry, every business, because it's a way to measure the business cycle pressure. And we're all about the business cycle. There are four phases to the business cycle. We talk about the psychology of each, the strategies as you go into them, the tactics while you're in them. They're standard sign rate, okay, four phases, four quadrants. But how you know you're getting to them begins with knowing your rate of change, because there are checking points and it's a methodology. It's not complicated. This is the sweet part of that. And if somebody wants to go to my website, we have a video on it. It's free. We have written literature on it. It's free. So we'll I'm put all those links you. in the show notes too for everybody. Okay. Thanks. It's 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 there. So it begins with the rate of change. And so when you know where your rate of change is going, all right, I'm, I'm climbing this hill. How long am I going to climb the hill? And what will that uh, rate of rise look like are the two questions you have to answer, right? Your rate of change will tell you, all right, I'm going to keep climbing for the next three to six months. I want to see further than that. That's where the leading indicators come in. That's why I want to start with the rate of change. Your short oh, cool. view okay, yeah. by rate of change. We use a number of proprietary uh, leading indicators, but we also use others that are uh, out there, the purchasing managers index. We just make it into a rate of change because it sees better and smoother. We can look at what's happening in bonds. We can look at what's happening in JP Morgan Global Manufacturing Index. I mean, there's, there's no lack of, of indicators. And we have our favorite 15. And we see which ones relate best to the company or to housing or to whatever the industry is. And those generally will give you six to 18 months into the future, the hmm. best of 18 months. So say six to 12 to be comfortable. So my own numbers give me my next three to six. Lead indicators give me the six months after that. Now I have a year's view into the future. Now I can plan. Interesting. So going back to the rate of change, maybe I want to just do another brush up on that. So I think because of everybody watching the COVID rates over the last 15 months, I think more people are more familiar with rates of change now than they ever thought they would have because yeah. of how they were looking at data. But can you just kind of give your overall um, explanation of it again? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, what you do is you take your last three months worth of data. So let's say it's March, April, May, and you compare March, April, May of 2021 to March, April, May, 2020. Now it's going to be fluked because of COVID, but just work with me on the, on the mm -hmm. example. Then I'm going to take the next three months. So it'll be April, May, June. Then I'm going to take May, June, July. And, and in those three month groups are going to compare to a year ago. And if the, the number that's derived there, which is the rate of growth is going up, then I know that, even if the number that I'm looking at for July is down from June, as long as that rate of change is going up, I'm saying, well, I'm still ahead of last year and there's positive business cycle momentum. So I don't look at it a down month and go, oh, I look mm -hmm. at it and I go normal and don't shrug it off because your rates of change say you're going to continue to grow. And that really does drive your, you away from the minutia and say, well, that may have been seasonal, may have been a short month. It may have been, but I'm still ahead of where I, history says I would be. So I'm good. That's fantastic. And yeah, then you do it for 12 months at a time to finish your question, because then you get the broader brush and mm -hmm. then you, you, you can bet the farm on that 12 over 12 rate of change, because that will let you know I'm in phase B, I'm going up, man, and I'm going to be going up for X period of time, especially when you use leading indicators. Super interesting. And, and, and there's uh, some good correlations between that and the trailing 12 months of the income statements and the graphs that yeah. we've, we're very familiar with. You can, you can show people, hey, like this, instead of looking at the calendar year over year, you're like, well, year to date, what does that tell you? Yeah. It's like in the <laughs> vacuum, it doesn't do anything. I know. That's so true. I, I still run into that and I go, I want to ask that, but I don't. I bite my tongue, <laughs> but I go, Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what does that mean? Like, yeah, right. Thank you. You've done this. Yeah. It's, it just allows you to see it's not a crystal ball, but you can better clearly see what's hopefully in front of you because you can, again, like you're saying, you can see that 
this is normal, but the change is going this direction. So you can a little bit anticipate what's going to happen. So how do you take that three month and the 12 months and then extrapolate these leading indicators into a 2030 forecast? Uh, that's too far out. Uh, to your point you made just before this, and, I'll, and I will get back to it, I promise. What we have found out is that eight out of 10 of our clients say that we have increased the confidence in their uh, planning. Oh, that's awesome. Because of the tools that we just talked about. Um, yeah, it is awesome. That's one of our goals here is to help businesses see the future first. That's our passion is to see the future yeah. first. Now, it does not help for 2030. There you got to go to logic and, and you go to uh, math. When inflation reaches this height, what does it do? When interest rates reach this height? And our cyclical theories drive that thinking. And as we get closer, it'll be the rates of change. But right now, there are no leading indicators that go that far. It's only logic, which you and I were chatting about. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's just, it boggles the mind that one could think that there's no recourse or there's no end game. There's no consequence to the things going on. Why? I'll do it drugs. Is, It'll be fine. <laughs> well, it is crazy. I know. And like, and it's so interesting that where, where is the logic, Alan? Like, I'm so confused and why you, you can watch super sophisticated people. And then like, they're just kind of, like, I don't know if it's so deep in the trenches of jargon and their academia that that, that happens or like, cause I, I mean, I'll sit there and my wife has gotten so sick of me over the last couple of years. Like, <laughs> can you believe this? And she's like, Ryan, people know what they're doing. I'm like, I don't know, but like, if you just take the common sense lens, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> well, I think it, they are super smart. You're absolutely right. Take nothing away. I think sometimes we can get so involved in our own theory that we don't look around. And the other thing is, innately, human beings are straight line forecasters, straight line thinkers. So mm -hmm. I'm looking at today and I'm going, yeah, this works. I'm looking at tomorrow. Go, yeah, that'll work. And as long as this data set continues as, as long as this world doesn't change this will work mm -hmm. there, there's the falsehood right this world will change mm -hmm. and what happens when you bring in those changes is is the key mm -hmm. uh, and i think that's part of it because you're right these are exceptionally brilliant people but i think they forget to factor in change so what are you know with your book about how to prosper in what's about to come you know so we're you know middle of 2021 now and we got you know nine, eight and a half, nine years as we're looking at this going, okay, well, nine and a half, I should say, sorry. Um, the, what services or industries, I mean, like as you think about different companies, like how, what are the ways to prosper and, and navigate through these, uh, these choppy waters? Yeah. Well, big question. <laughs> yeah. Right. Tell us all exactly how to be millionaires, Alan. Come on. It's super easy. <laughs> Two minutes. Go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, back to the sound bites. And then we'll push that all over on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, you do have to be in industries that will be in demand, even with a great depression upon us. Now, that's not as tough as it sounds. Because uh, let me set the stage. A Great Depression means somewhere around 25% unemployment. It means uh, falling prices, falling stock market, but that doesn't change basic human demand and human needs. Mm -hmm. So if you're in the business, if you're in a high-end restaurant business, uh, you're going to see you know a lot of empty tables, but that doesn't necessarily put you out of business. What you're more likely to see is more like the Great Recession, where restaurants uh, back in 2008 and 9. Uh, what they saw was a lot less table service and people were not ordering cocktails and dessert. They were choosing one or the other. Mm. And the cost of the entree went down a little bit. I mean, that's the type of thing you got to drive your thinking to. If, I, if I'm in a world that sells high-end designer goods and the stock market took a dive, your business is cooked. But if you're somebody that provides the good and, and the better and not dependent upon the best in the marketing model, Oh, it's it's a different world. If you're selling uh, automobiles, I'm sorry. If you're selling bicycles, good deal. <laughs> you know? Education is good because people will get new training. Uh, I think the climate change and in, in initiatives there will be steady work. Healthcare mm -hmm. will be good work. Engineering services of just about any kind, mm -hmm. uh, good work. Economic consulting firms, we hope is good work. <laughs> <laughs> Uncertainty brings good work. <laughs> Uncertainty does bring good work. Uh, but things that must-haves are certainly the trucking industry. You're not going to need as many trucks and as many truckers, but it, 
let's assume one of your clients is in the trucking industry. Let's latch onto that one. Mm-hmm. All right. And I'm running, pick a number, 40 trucks and I'm maxed out. And it's in the second half of the 2020s. I'm covering costs. I'm making money. I'm tempted to add more trucks because I'm straight line forecasting. Mm-hmm. That's the fellow that's going out of business. Now your listener, because they're in tune with you, says, you know what? I see all this happening. I see what Ryan's talking about. And what I'm going to do is start letting, uh, start keep my prices going, but I'm not going to start adding a bunch of trucks. I'm going to be willing to pass on some of that growth rather than be overextended and rather than have too many people. And you let attrition in 2029 start taking care of some of your people losses and you're going to lose your loser clients and you're going to stick with the industries you know will continue to need trucking. So car parts are out, mm-hmm. you know, and that sort of stuff. And that fellow, that that company, that that person is going to be able to downsize their business at a profitable level and operate now with 30 trucks and still be profitable because they won't have overextended and they'll be in the right industries. So trucking is not going to go away, but the trucking company who decides that sky's the limit, bang. That's one of the keys. Well, and let's take that example and continue it because the linear thinking and the the behaviors that come with that, like saddling the company with debt, buying additional companies. And I'm watching, Ellen, like you and I could have a heyday with stories of the what's happening with, I mean, private equity is eating the world. I mean, it is so ridiculous because I'm watching, and this is, you can absolutely correct me if I'm wrong, but all I can think about in my head is I've got, I see like, okay, all these pension funds that are pretty much broke, and the insurance companies that can't get any yield, the endowments, all these people are looking for yield, pushes it into private equity that normally got 21% rate of return. Now, whenever those, whenever the GPs are going to give their investors back the money, who knows what the actual internal rate of return will be, but they're leveraging these companies, Alan, in all these industries because they have to, they have to deploy the money. So your example about riding the wave in a sustainable way for the trucking industry is not possible when you've essentially forecasted the debt levels with that company according to the current demand. Yeah. I mean, it just doesn't work. Right. You're right. It takes an owner, you know, Melinda owns this trucking company. Okay. Melinda is belonging to a trucking company association. She's hearing about, you know, I'm buying this, I'm growing this and I'm expanding and I'm buying into this mm-hmm. new marketplace. Melinda has to be willing to sit there and go, they're going to think I'm stupid. And that's hard for a human being to do. They're going to think I've lost my nerve. As, and as a CEO leader, she's not going to want people to think that she's lost her nerve. She's actually showing more, more nerve than they do, but they just don't believe her. So it's going to take a CEO with iron and, and extreme fortitude to forego that, that boom mentality because the politicians are going to say everything's fine and hold back and not get Are you familiar with tugboat? And Evergreen? Uh, Tugboat. Um, so Vicki Tenekin, um, who wrote The Century Club, was just on the show. So oh, she was talking. Okay. Yeah, she like yeah, she was talking about a hundred year companies. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. crazy. I, I just got involved with those folks. That's the mindset that's needed, is the evergreen yeah. and and that I gotta build this and built to last, you know, not the book, uh-huh. but the mentality. And um, I think that that's how you avoid that trap. And, and course if you if you sell out to private equity you've, you've cashed out and you're just going to you know, stay on for as long as they'll keep you the, the only thing i would add to that though is like when when a lot of the pe firms you know they're making people roll equity in and that can be wiped away because all of a oh, sudden yeah. now the company's got all this debt they don't run the company and then you know this catastrophe when and how it happens in their industry however it comes i mean there's a good chunk of their wealth on the on the table with that they can't control well that's true Nice part is in, there's a lot of bidding going on for companies now, so you can choose the one that doesn't have you roll over as much or roll over any mm-hmm. if you're willing to. It's a greed thing. If you're willing to take a, a bit smaller price mm-hmm. in order to reduce your risk, that's what it comes down to, right? It's, uh, so so true. And so kind of shifting gears, how does the rest of the world like taking this from a global perspective, so you got the U.S. with the world-denominated currency, the Fed's printed. Our our output is a lot less than it used to be back in the '60s, <laughs> and so with our issues with China and inventory and all the stuff that we re, re, um, found out, and was it 
two days ago that China is now allowing people to have three children. Yeah. So you have all these dynamics of the central banks ballooning with their own balance sheets. I mean, how, how does this on a world stage impact the next nine years? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Some of it, uh, it, it impacts, you know, the inflation and it can impact the risk uh, to growth because of China. If we end up at war with China, I mean, you, you brought in so many subjects in my mind. It's, it's pretty much. <laughs> like, yeah. Like almost a paralysis. Stuff just went by my head and I'm trying <laughs> to grab pieces of it as you were going on. Um, let me let me let me refrain it for you, Alan, because okay. I, I, this is why I said I'm a kid in a candy shop where I just grabbed a bunch of candy out of out of a bowl, hoping to to get it all at once. I think it's the position of the U.S. on the world stage, and because we're the central players right now that are kind of, regardless of how we act, we're impacting a lot of people, and we now have a rival from technology to you know the actual soundness of other currencies. I mean, there's just a lot of stuff where we're not like we used to be. And I, and I, and I, if I, and maybe I'm wrong, but I, I look at like where we are compared to when Paul Volcker wrote his book and I'm going, we don't have the clout we used to. And we got to, you know, coordinate our efforts because of pressures that from China that we've never seen before. Right. Okay. Uh, that's, thank you for simplifying for my, uh, <laughs> I apologize for the, for, for the first one. Brain here, but <laughs> um, a couple of things you said that I want to make sure that we're talking the same language. Uh, you mentioned before, and you just kind of bumped up, but again, we're not what we used to be on the political global power structure scene. Yes, because economically, uh, we're almost at record manufacturing output in this country. We will be next year. Uh, people don't wow. even think we manufacture in this country. It'll be record output. So we don't want to make that mistake. That's super crazy. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know that. We're the second largest manufacturing nation in the world. And most people think we've somehow lost our mojo and we just mm-hmm. can't do it anymore. We're the second largest exporter of goods in the world. China is larger, but we're the second largest. And on a, on a GDP basis, we're the largest economy on the planet and we will be for decades to come. So I, I don't want people to get the think, idea that we're losing our way. Mm-hmm. We're becoming more collegial if I may put it that way, on the global scene, rather than being the bully uh, mm-hmm. stick that Roosevelt talked about, where we're consensus builders. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I just want to set that stage. And no, that was super helpful, Alan. It really was. Okay, thanks. Now, let's go back to China. Uh, fascinating subject. Uh, and, and I love talking about China. China's got more problems than we do. We just don't hear about them. Their pollution is, is rampant. They have to deal with it. We know that's expensive. Our CO2 levels in this country, Ryan, have been coming down for years. For some reason, Americans aren't told that, but it's independent sources showing our CO2, and so are Europe's. China's is still soaring. Mm -hmm. Now, that puts us at odds, especially with President Biden, who is all about climate change. And that's neither plus or minus. It's just a reality. So we cannot have a a bonhomie relationship when they're killing the planet, in our view, and, and we can't allow that. Mm-hmm. And we also have taken a stand against China on genocide and on dumping goods. And, you know, our relationship with them is strained to the max. Yeah. And, and they have shown that they're willing to shove back. President Xi has, in diplomatic language and in action, pushed back on, on President Biden, which was like a, well, where'd you get the nerve to do that kind of moment? But he did. They've known each other for decades. And they're distancing themselves from the United States and making, making nice with Russia, which is new, and building stronger relationships with Europe. Uh, if you want a lot of rare earth minerals right now, it's controlled by China, whether it's in Africa, Brazil, or in China. They got it. And so they're, they're shoring up their power. Tensions increase. Either it's a Cold War or it's a heated up trade war. Uh, that we seem to be on a path towards, we win. How do I know we win? Because we still have, we don't have the size army that they do, but we still have uh, a blue sea Navy that's better than anybody else's in the world by far. Uh, We have more aircraft carriers than the rest of the world combined. I mean, so our our naval power ensures our sufficiency. That's one of the reasons why I I get kind of nervous when people say we don't need the Navy. I go, only if you, only if you don't want to maintain 
our premise. <laughs> so, well, I mean, they got the China's Belt and Road. I mean, they're 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 trying they to figure out. Yeah, they're trying to figure out how to build their own their yes, own infrastructure. Yeah, they are, and it's impressive work that they're doing. And um, and this is a bit dated information, but I remember talking with somebody in the Pentagon, and uh, this was not a state secret that. So I can I can say this, but this was years ago. One of the, the Chinese surfaced a submarine near one of our aircraft carriers. I mean, that's a big no-no, but it was certainly an in-your-face, flip-you-the-bird moment. <laughs> uh, so what we did is on a day, we had six of our ballistic missile submarines surface at the same time around and then go back down. But they were caught on satellite, and it was like, don't you even think about it. You know, we're here in the depths. We got six birds. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that has not gone away. I mean, the tensions have continued to, to increase. That's part of what your clients and your listeners have to keep in mind is that this reshoring effort is only going to pick up speed because the instability of that global supply chain is only going to increase. You asked about that a while ago, and I kind of drifted off of it, and I, and I just want to bring it back. Reshoring is real, and they're coming back for a long list of reasons. It's not just uh, uh, too much time on ships. I mean, it's, it's the reshoring initiative. You can Google that. It's got a long mm-hmm. list of, of reasons, and I've compiled them. We're going to see it continue. Your clients have to be aware of that. That's going to help them also as we get to the Great Depression scenario or even to the next eight years because of the tensions we were just talking about globally. In, in what ways? Uh, they'll be able to get what they need domestically as opposed to waiting for that container to come through. And a container that was $2,500 to ship across the Pacific is now $15,000. It'll go back down, but that shows you the pricing pressures that you're, that you're under versus something that you were getting domestically is now, you know, it's more expensive, but not like it would be through tariffs. The, the, the price discrepancies aren't as much as they were before. Correct. And the availability of goods is greater. I have clients who go, it's not really an issue for us because we get our getting our stuff from Canada. We're getting our stuff from mm-hmm. Mexico or in the United States. And and by the way, our trade relations combined Canada and Mexico is greater than that of China. So I mean, our mm-hmm. nearest neighbors are our best friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that reshoring gives them some security, some help. And the more that their customers are involved in reshoring, it means that again, the the trade relations aren't going to sour. Mm-hmm. Uh, as much as we may not understand Arkansas, we're not going to go to war with Arkansas. We're just <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you don't have a bunch of state wars going on. Yeah. So that is super interesting is like, is the uh, because of the reshoring, is that also going to help the businesses over the next eight years as they in something that might not be as viable in a quote unquote Great Depression might actually be viable because it went from very little manufacturing in the U.S. to actually even having a demands like that yeah. is that going to mitigate any of the impacts of this 2030 uh, Great Depression you're talking about? For those that are in the game, yes, absolutely. Those that are manufacturing, distributing, developing services that are in in the related fields, it, it certainly helps a lot. And as far as the overall impact of reshoring, mitigating the depth of the depression. Perhaps I have not really tried to to run any kind of numbers on that, but it, you could certainly argue that in some localities where there's this now there's this factory employing a hundred people, and that's a needed factory. It's not going to go away. Mm-hmm. You certainly made things better there in a Great Depression than you would. It's a question mm-hmm. whether nationally it, it produces. Yeah, yeah, good. like oh, on the bigger picture, if it if if it's making a dent. Um, so I know we're getting short on time here, and this is it's just. It, just as you can have a small comment and I'm, I'm not going like, to do the kid in the candy shop thing to you again, <laughs> but it, you know, one of the things that Alex and I talked about a couple of years ago when we first started talking is this whole baby boomer wave of owners of business owners that are going to have to pass on. You know, one of the things that I, I continue to see Alan is that you got, you know, the 5% of companies that are over the, over the uh, $100 million mark, and you got everybody else that's smaller. They don't have a bunch of value in their businesses as much. Um, and so I can't remember what the stats were, Alan. It was like, it was like five, out of 6 million privately held companies, it was like 5.6 that are below 5 million in revenue, and then 300 and some thousand that are between 5 million and 100 million, and then whatever percentage above that. 
there's not really a lot of wealth there. There's a lot of jobs that need to tr be transferred to people that are my age that can go in and run a business. I mean, are you, is this in your data sets at all? Are you any comments as far as like that overall trend as it goes towards the 2030? Yeah, it's, yeah, yes. To answer your question, the short answer is yes, I have a comment. <laughs> Whether it's another podcast is a different story. <laughs> I think the transfer of wealth that people talk about is overstated mm -hmm. because it is uh, in pockets, is, is not ubiquitous for the reasons that you stated. Now, wealth is also very much self-defined. If I have a business that is a million-dollar business, it's not classified as anything other than a small business. I employ 20 people, a million dollars, but I'm making 100000 a year. I'm doing better than median. That's a good income. Mm -hmm. uh, and, I, and I sell it and, and pocket a half million dollars, five, multiple of five off the EBITDA. All of a sudden, geez, you know, I'm feeling pretty good and I feel like I'm wealthy and I'm able to pass on some money to my kids. So it doesn't rise to wealth the way we think of it today. But at the individual and family level, that's significant because mm -hmm. that just sets somebody up for a different future than they had before. Or even better, in my opinion, because of Evergreen, I have a, an offspring who, uh, of some kind, niece, nephew, whatever, that wants to run the business. I do an internal sale to them, and I've continued the legacy. I've continued 20 jobs, and I've just, in my opinion, made the world a better place. It's a transfer of wealth of a different kind, which does involve my monetary benefit and a future legacy that I think means something. Mm, that's a world. very good point. Yeah, it's a very good point. You're, you're passing on that income and that wealth, potential for wealth creation within that business. That's yeah. that's really awesome. Yeah. So I know we're uh, rounding out and this has been a lot of fun and I apologize if I was <laughs> shooting you with too many darts at once, but you know, it, as as we think about the, the near, the very, very near term, the midterm and then the 2030, any, you know, words of advice for someone on a high level of like how to manage those three different kind of timelines and as it relates to their company? Uh, yeah. Take risks now as in invest in your business for future growth. You have to do that. Just make sure you understand the level of growth. That's number one. Number two, do not straight line forecasts. And because of that, number three, make sure personally and corporately you have as little debt as is humanly possible by the end of this decade. You have a mortgage on your home, fine. Don't go get that Porsche with a big car payment. You know, don't have your child, well, yours are too young, but don't you think in, 20, in five years to go out and get that mansion uh, mm -hmm. that will stretch your income level. That's the worst thing that you can do at business level, personal level, do not stretch at the end of this decade. You go comfortable and conservative. And then... Uh, fourth, you want to be ready to get out of the stock market fast, and we can help you with that. Uh, it's a leading indicator thing again. You know, we had that discussion. And go into bonds at the right time. You don't want to time the market, but before everything goes down, you want to make sure you're into bonds, not U.S. bonds. Different discussion, different webinar, different mm -hmm. podcast. And then uh, partway through that Great Depression, you, Ryan, are going to take – the money that you have parked off to the side, I'm going to make up an amount. Let's make $2 million. You just have discretionary. So around 2036, you're going to say, you know what? Everybody thinks this will be stupid, but I'm going to take my $2 million. I'm going to put it into equities. I'm going to put it into the ITR optimizer. I'm going to put it into an index fund, whatever. That history says that $2 million in a relative short time is going to become 4 to $5 million. And now because you were conservative here, You've reaped really large outsized benefits here just a few mm -hmm. short years later because of this Great Depression. And you can buy businesses. You can buy real estate. You can buy small islands off the coast of Maine. You can do all kinds of things in a Great Depression. Well, I just even think too, Alan, I, I, I'm tracking what you're saying is like even your generation with the baby boomers, you're going to like people are going to have to transfer their assets at some point. Yep. You know, so not only is there the economic issues, but then there's the demographic issues that kind of go right inside with it. Oh yeah, absolutely. Although I have told my kids, uh, my plan for them is that I will have spent every last dime. <laughs> so <laughs> I didn't want plan, to plan to work about. hard. No lurking <laughs> about go out there and work hard. <laughs> I love it. Well, we're, we're already a little bit over. Um, so two final questions. Um, the first one is I ask everybody what the word intentional means because it's the name of the show. And I love to hear everybody else's response because they're so different, but what does the word intentional mean for you? Uh, first thing that popped in my head was doing it on purpose. Wow. Drop the mic. I love it. 
Second question is uh, best place to get in touch with you, ITR, and all the materials that you guys have. Thanks. ITREconomics.com. It's as simple as that. And if uh, you can, if I may, we have that webinar coming up in July where Brian and I are talking in depth about the 2030s and interest rates, money, uh, inflation, uh, what the world's going to look like and that sort of stuff. So you can go to our website and see some information. And we'll put the link in the show notes too. So that way everybody can, uh, can grab on and make sure that they get, uh, and do attendance if they like this kind of stuff. Alan, this has been a blast. I really enjoyed this. Thanks so much for coming on the show. It was fun. Thank you. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to that interview with Alan. I love this stuff. And the reason I love it is because the only way to be intentional, which is designing your plan on purpose according to where you want to go, if you don't know where you're going, then it's going to be very difficult to navigate those waters on the way there. And by understanding big macro trends, I think that you can reverse engineer some of the things that you're going to have to do for your business and your strategic plan. These big picture things are one thing and it's good to listen to them, but to bring this home and say, okay, what does this mean for me and my business? I am absolutely a believer that if you build your financials in a way that you have your income statement, your balance sheet, and your cash flow statement, you project those three out, you can start to see inside of how your company is going to operate over the next five years, what kind of cash it's going to have, what kind of distributions you can take, how to forecast taxes, increases in tax or decrease in tax, and the ability to forecast inflation, how you would handle that. It's truly like looking into a crystal ball of your company, knowing that most of the world is unknown. You can still then get the numbers and get the path to say, this is where we're going and I've got a plan. And when things happen, I can adjust that plan because the levers are right in front of me instead of flying blind like 99% of people do. If you want more information on this kind of stuff, go check out the Intentional Growth Training. It's at arcona.io. We got the curriculum and you can start to see how you can use your business and your strategic planning, your financials to grow value and be able to navigate the future waters that are coming, regardless of whether you can see them perfectly or whether it's more of the big trends like Alan's talking about. Thanks for tuning in. I will see you next week.